Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Saying that this is a time of division in America would, for a lot of people, be kind of an understatement. There are economic divisions, geographic divisions, racial divisions, political divisions. And it's not like this is totally new, but somehow they've gone from two-dimensional to three-dimensional. And for many of us, the question is, are we morally similar or do we just have completely different moral compasses? This is a particularly tough question for my college roommate, Eden, whose political leanings have shifted over time from conservative to liberal. And that's created a wedge between her and her parents, a wedge that inevitably raises the question of morality. It's become more of a difficult question, you know, once Trump was elected. I called up Eden, who's now a pediatrician in Philadelphia, to talk about this. Because if we truly are in different moral camps, She's got to wonder, how can you be in a different moral camp from the people who raised you and from the people you love? Questioning like, wow, like these were like moral values that were instilled in me by my parents. And now I feel like they're actually turning against them, you know, and it's that's been more difficult to rationalize. I first met Eden when we were both 18, and she came up from Florida, from the Tampa area, to go to college in the Northeast. And Eden stood out some because she was clearly from a conservative family. We didn't sit around the table discussing the latest Supreme Court, you know, decision or, you know, like there were a couple tropes that my dad would always mention, like, you know, if an eagle was flying over my property, I would be put in jail if I shot it, you know, and he he was like irate about that. I mean, he basically was kind of like a Reagan-era Republican. Right, right. And he was upset about not being able to shoot the eagle because he was like, oh, we have too many regulations in this country, right? The government's too big. Right. It was like, it was impinging on his freedom. But when she got to the Northeast, it was a different world. I remember some conversations we had, you know, as roommates. <laughs> you know, that I think I just started to realize that I had these ideas from my family that I had just never thought that deeply about. Mm-hmm. You know, like I remember, you know, coming to college thinking that evolution wasn't real. And it's funny because I think growing up it was like more about the team and not the reasons that I think when I started examining the reasons, then I realized I wasn't really that politically conservative. She says there are now lots of topics that she tries not to talk to her parents about, like climate change, because they believe that God is the only force that can change the weather. But as life has gotten more complicated, there are some things that she hasn't been able to stay away from. A few years ago, for example, her sister got married to a Mexican man who was undocumented. You know, my parents have never said anything bad about him, and they've grown to really like him. But I think, you know, at first, they weren't okay with the idea. And then later, I think it became more that they knew it was such a hard issue for her 
that they, you know, didn't want her to have to go through, you know, the risk of him being deported and all that. But then once Trump came out and said, you know, that Mexico just sends us their rapists and criminals, <laughs> that really, like, you know, sent her off the deep end. And right. But that was during the campaign. And, I mean, your parents voted for him after that. Yeah. I, you know, and it's just still amazing to me that they don't, like, see why that would be so hurtful to her. Because um, all they say is, well, we really like Mario and we've never treated him badly. And, and that's true. I mean, I think, like, as a person, they're, they're very nice to him. But they somehow don't make that connection. You know, I try to be like the peacemaker and I would try to tell her, you know, I don't think it's anything personal at all. Like, this is their guy, that's their team, and mm-hmm. I don't know if it matters what he says. Like, it's just who they're going to like. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it was kind of okay until he was actually elected. And then it things blew up a little bit because my sister, you know, called him the day after, which, you know, I, it's probably a mistake, but, you know, and my dad said something about how he was really happy, and she said, oh, well, are you guys pressing your hoods for church? And which that kind of, you know, kind of makes me laugh a little bit, you know, like they were in the Ku Klux Klan. But, but it wasn't funny, actually, at all to them. They were deeply hurt by it. And it, I think there's still, you know, they patch things up a little bit, but it's still raw for my parents and, and for my sister. For Eden, who has changed her own views about politics a lot since she became an adult, since I met her, her freshman year of college, there's now a gulf that's really hard to cross. I think I would feel closer to them if we had the same political views, unfortunately. So, you know, we can only connect on a few levels, but we're missing like a couple more. (laughs) You know, and I have to wonder sometimes if that's partly what kept me from moving back to being close to them, you know, after college. Mm And I, you know, I feel like my parents raised me with really good values, but in some sense, the values have diverged a little, you know, a little bit. And so I love and respect them and I, you know, love visiting them. But there's part of me that just feels very different from them now. That's my college roommate, Eden. She's a doctor in the Philadelphia area, and it's her story that comes to my mind when I think about the particular tribal moment that we're in politically. Jennifer Richeson and Joshua Green spend a lot of time thinking about why we divide into different groups and what walls us off and whether there are potentially bridges that can be built. Jennifer Richeson is a psychology professor at Yale, and Joshua Green is a psychology professor at Harvard, and he's the author of the book Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. Thanks very much to both of you for for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So, you know, Eden was saying, like, the Trump era feels different. Do you think it's really different and there are stronger divisions now, or do we just tend to be so focused on our own time and place that it seems different? I think it is different, definitely. And part of what makes it different are new challenges that are in some sense the result of what I would regard as progress. Essentially, what's happened is that the United States has always been multicultural, but the dominance of the white Christian 
uh, main cultural block of, of the United States, which was not always viewed as a unified block, mm-hmm. but the, it, it had always been a predominantly white Christian country. And so even if the United States was not officially Christian and officially white, the people who fell in that category never felt particularly threatened. And now with power being shared more broadly and a tipping point when it comes to the kinds of, of, of cultural influences, a black man and a black family in the White House really ignited a fire. Now all of a sudden, people who are defining America in what I would call tribal terms, in terms of a particular group of people with a certain set of cultural values, those people are suddenly at odds with people who define America in terms of a set of abstract ideals, mm-hmm. right? And that's really what's coming to a head right now. Mm. Is America first and foremost a country that's about the group of people and the particular culture that's been dominant for a long time? Or is America first and foremost about a set of abstract principles that can survive and maybe even encourage the demise of any one particular tribal group's dominance? And that's, I think, the fundamental political tension right now. And it's a big one. Jen, why do we form tribes in the first place? Like, why do we divide along, could be political, racial, economic lines? How does that um, benefit us? It must benefit us in some ways because we do it. For sure. I mean, it's it's in some ways it's an evolved capacity. It helps to be uh, working, you know, in a community to have protection, right, community groups provide information. They, you know, help sort out what we're supposed to be doing. They provide, you know, good reference for social comparison. So, you know, groups are good, right? And in most of the groups that we end up being in, we think are perfectly legitimate and reasonable and helpful and and safe and good and we celebrate them, right? I mean, with even symbolic groups like sports teams mm-hmm. and, you know, all, all of these are are perfectly functional. Um, to the extent that they are also not so deeply embedded in sort of hierarchies and intractable conflict, right? That's when they become, uh, you know, hugely problematic, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I think that's where um, what Josh was talking about, the politics of groupiness, let's just say, or, you know, really capitalizing on this ability and tendency to see ourselves as just the us and not only not we don't want to include them we think the the, who's in the them or the they they're out to get us right Mm -hmm. it's that kind of um response and then the reactionary you know behaviors and psychology the hunkering down that groups do when they feel under attack that's you know hugely problematic when it's of course you know not a real under attack Josh, how do you get to a situation where you've got people who are, you know, really nice, lovely people, they have other family members who are equally nice and lovely people, and somehow through their experiences, they become part of two separate moral tribes, even though, as you know, they might go to Thanksgiving together, um, and you would think they're the same, they share the same, you know, a lot of the same sort of genetic information, right. but but what happens? So... I think the part of the key here is that what we're thinking of these two tribes is not they're not completely symmetrical. A lot of the psychology is symmetrical, as Jen said, in terms of people feeling like the the, the victims and, and and not comprehending the other side. Are we talking but, liberal and conservative yes, here in the, the U.S. Tribes? Okay. Right, but I think really the fundamental question is how big is your us? 
how big is your circle, right? So what really happened, and I think what happened to your friend Eden, is that her us got larger, mm-hmm. right? So it's not just the red team and the in, in 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 the blue team. It's one that's more globalist, universalist, cosmopolitan versus one that doesn't doesn't necessarily say I hate everybody else, mm-hmm. but my primary concern are with 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 the people who who fall within this group. So how do people end up in in different groups? Well, I mean, your your friend Eden is really a, a nice example. She grew up in an environment where. The tribe was close to home and that she wasn't exposed to much else. And a lot of things that, you know, later in life she came to question, she just took for granted because that's just what she thought of as common sense. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't quite as common as she thought, right? Mm-hmm. And then she goes to a place, you know, for school where she's going to meet more people from a lot of different places and be exposed to different ideas. And her cultural and social horizons broadened, right? And so it's really just exposure, I think, in a, you know, not all intercultural contact ends up being positive, but the kind that you get over a long period of time in a, in a, in a, in a college setting, for example, or other sorts of cosmopolitan settings, tends to be positive and tends to change people's views. Jen, can you talk a little bit about, you know, research that speaks to how early in life do we start to create that us versus them? It's like, are little kids doing that? Are most of these ideas about who the us is and who the them is formed when we're little? What happens there? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly the propensity for the us versus them is, you know, arguably wired in. In fact, there's, you know, very strong evidence. Now, our culture and society tells us which us's and them's or which divisions matter, right, and which have value and currency. And we do learn that very early, um, especially uh, racial divisions, uh, what comes to be gender uh, divisions. You know, we, we learn this quite early. And, and interestingly, in terms of race, we, we learn it in a couple of ways. One, um, by watching our parents and community members engage or not or, and talk about racial difference. And depending on what group you're in, especially if you're a racial minority, you learn it by going out in the world and being called names <laughs> and, you know, sort of treated poorly, or at least in ways that are complicated and and confusing, and going home and saying, this thing happened to me, and, you know, three- and four-year-old kids uh, are, you know, often subjected to questions and uh, if not slurs, you know, why is your, your skin brown? Um, why, you know, I, I heard you're a this or a that. And, and I think they're trying to f- figure out what that means. And that conversation starts quite early for, for many racial minority kids. And it's an effort to understand difference, which is, you know, obviously something that, that kids can see that we have to help them understand what it means and what it doesn't mean in a sort of more proactive way than I think many Americans think, especially many white Americans. I, th- I think there's this sense that if we just don't talk about race or difference and in fact lead, help lead kids to think that they shouldn't even mention it, even though some of these are readily apparent, that they can't possibly become racist. And it's exactly the opposite. The, mm. the more you don't talk about it, the more you don't help kids understand what differences matter and how um, they might matter, 
that's when they're susceptible to being, you know, kind of co-opted by the people who are talking about it. Again, white supremacists aren't afraid to talk about racial difference. They're wrong, and they'll tell a lot of sort of stories about what is is not what is so and what's not so, but they're talking about it. If racial egalitarians are not talking about race, then they've seeded the ground, right? So what you know, usually I suggest people, especially my white friends with kids, is that they, they talk about it and say, yes, isn't that interesting? People come in, you know, all kinds of differences. What do you think about this one? And help their kids, age appropriately, of course, to understand that although people look different, they, and have different backgrounds, they're actually, we're all the same, but we're not all treated the same way. And how do we understand why that's so? And how can, what can we do about it if we want to live in a society that actually is fair and just? You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jennifer Richardson, a psychology professor at Yale, and Joshua Green, a psychology professor at Harvard about uh, the deep divisions in our country. So, Josh, uh, Jen talked about how even young kids get a sense of at least differences like who they are, who other people are, how that contrasts. How do you explain people who change? So they grow up, they they sort of know what their views are, and then they shift. Maybe even as full-fledged adults, they shift. Um, And we've seen people change as adults on things like gay marriage. Um, So how do you explain when somebody, you know, changes their point of view and leaves their moral tribe or like one vision of the world and and adopts a new vision? Right. So I think the example of, of gay marriage and the rapid shift on that is actually a wonderful example of trying to understand the mechanisms that bring about change and make it harder or, 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 or go more quickly. People have asked, it's a good question, why did things change so quickly on gay marriage and we're still stuck with so many of the same problems when it comes to uh, race? I think the answer is that uh, you don't get a white family that all of a sudden unexpectedly has a black child born into it or a white community, right? right, right. Whereas you do have white families or Christian families, whatever, who all of a sudden do have gay uh, children uh, born into it. Yeah, but that's been uh, happening forever, and the change only happened recently. Right. So once the tipping point occurred where instead of people staying closeted their whole whole lives or getting out of town as fast as they can and never talking to their parents and friends again or once a year— once it got to the point where it was acceptable enough and discussed enough that people felt like they had enough support and uh, and and could could survive out out in the open, then there was a very rapid change. And what brought that change about is that you were leveraging some of people's most strong feelings, positive feelings, against these other very negative feelings. Mm -hmm. That is, you could say, on the one hand, it really just seems to me wrong and an abomination against God for my son to be doing what he's doing with his boyfriend. Uh, But it's my son. It's it's the person I love as much as anybody in the Mm -hmm. world, right? And those two things fight it out. And then they look around at their neighbors and they go to the church group to discuss this. And everyone looks around, is this okay? Are we all right with this? Can can we still love our children? And it can change very quickly because there was this stark battle set up between attitudes towards, towards gays and other sexual minorities and these very strong personal and often case family bonds hmm. and you didn't ha- you still don't often have as powerful levers working to heal divide between races and between other other cultural groups and I, I think that's why the, the flip on gay marriage and gay rights more generally 
has happened so quickly, not completed, mm-hmm, but it's happened mm-hmm. so much more quickly mm-hmm. is because it was just thrust into the middle of the family in the middle of the community as opposed to existing primarily across family and community uh, lines. You know, we were talking uh, before about um, is this a uniquely polarized time? And I have a friend who who works with seniors in high school who are going off to college. And she said she increasingly hears people say, and this worries her, that they don't want to go um, to a city or a state or a school where they feel like people won't agree with them politically because they just don't think they could handle it. What do you yeah, think of that? that? that that's terrible. <laughs> you know, I, I do think that's, that's, that's tough. Um, it's, it's, to me, one of the great joys of, of working at a university is helping young people cultivate the skills to navigate these differences, whether it's a political divide or an attitudinal divide in some other, on some, you know, due to some other belief. I mean, that's an incredible skill set that you get from being, you know, plopped in a place where people don't quite understand anything about you. I mean, I'm sure this is how, uh, you know, your college roommate felt when she showed up, uh, you know, in the Northeast all of a sudden in this, you know, odd community. You know, ironically, I think it's something that many uh, students of color come to learn and develop in college, especially when they go to predominantly white schools um, like I did and like Yale, you learn how to navigate difference and you actually become very good at it. It's a skill set like anything else. And if nothing else, I think, you know, it's time for this discomfort around difference to be democratized, Mm. right? That's what we're experiencing now. And, you know, it used to be, it fall on the, you know, sort of the brunt of certain groups, you know, entirely and not others. And now there's sort of a realization, well, maybe we should, you know, shift the playing field to make it a little bit more fair, where Mm. everyone has to think carefully (laughs) about- Everyone feels uncomfortable now. Yeah, everyone (laughs) feels uncomfortable now, right? Right, But there's something to be gained on the other side of that discomfort. Um, Josh, when you think about different moral tribes, I feel like if I sat down with a bunch of Americans, they could be from across the spectrum, and I said, like, here are my values, Uh, being nice to people, working hard, being a good parent. Everybody would nod and say, those are my values, too. So, you know, we talk about uh, people as being so far apart, um, but in some ways we also believe in, like, exactly the same things. So everybody's the same within their us. And right, it's the right. us's that differ, uh-huh. right? Every tribe is opposed to killing people because you don't like them within right. the tribe. Uh, <laughs> lying to people, right? You know, friendship is friendship. And, you know, there are important differences. But when we think, yeah, every, we all seem to be good people, what that really means is we are all willing and capable of being good to the people who we regard as part of our us, right? And the problem comes, when are you willing to give something up for someone who you don't think of as being in, inside your us or some, it's, it's part of somebody else's us, but not part of yours. So that's why I said it's not just a perfect symmetrical red team versus blue team. Mm-hmm. We all have a common core of tribal morality, of getting along within a group, right? It's the core of morality is about me versus us. It's about selfishness versus caring for other people. And that's what's common to every recognizable moral system. Where they differ is how how far outside of that core us are you willing to go and are you willing to give things up for those people? Joshua Green is a psychology professor at Harvard. He's also author of the book Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. Jennifer Richeson is a psychology professor at Yale. 
Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks. Thanks so much. If you want to read more about Joshua Green's work on moral tribes, we've got that for you at our website. And Jennifer Richardson actually just published a fascinating study looking at how we view income inequality through racial lenses and how bad we are at estimating the real inequities in society. That's also on our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, fueling innovation, talent, and community in Rochester, Minnesota, home to Mayo Clinic. Learn more at dmc.mn. told you about an American city that was doing great, where people were making plenty of money, lots more money than they used to. Um, And in some ways, it was a model of prosperity. And you said, you know, well, that might be true on average. But in my experience, lots of people in this particular city are hurting. Now, we both could be right, because there are different ways of thinking mathematically about what's average or what's typical. Mathematician Eugenia Chang has written about your favorite terms from junior high math, mean and median. She's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal and the author of Beyond Infinity. She joins us here from time to time to talk about how math relates to our everyday lives. Eugenia, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we hear about means and medians all the time, um, especially when you're talking about like income in a certain area or the cost of a house. Can you just remind us uh, what mean and median are? The way we find the mean is that we add all the numbers up and we divide it by the total number of people there are or the total number of things that there are. And this is, it kind of is the most memorable one perhaps, but it doesn't really tell us anything particularly. Whereas the median is where we say half of the people have less than this amount and half of the people have more than this amount. So it's also known as the 50th percentile, the Hmm. place where half of the things are below it and half of the things are above it. So although this is a kind of less popular kind of average to use, it tells us something much more specific that I think is more relevant often. It's interesting that you think median is is often a better metric because I think that mean, which is average, which is the term I think we all use and think about, that's what we used all throughout school, right? I have an 85 average in this class. I have a 92 average in this class. Like, what's your like? What's your average score? You know, that kind of thing. And so that's right. what we're used to. But you're saying not necessarily the best thing uh, to measure things by. Well, it's difficult to say what it actually tells us, whereas the median really tells us something. Your median score would say half of your grades were below this and half of your grades were above this. Mm. And the thing about the mean and the median is that the time when they are really quite similar is when the distribution of the numbers is like a normal distribution. So like a normal bell curve that goes up in the middle and slopes off towards both sides in a symmetrical way. So if the distribution of numbers is like that, then it doesn't make any difference. The mean and the median will be about the same. But some distributions are really skewed towards one side. And in that case, the mean and the median are really different. So let's take an example that I think is used all the time that people really want to know about. Like, what's the average house price in this city? If I wanted to move to Chicago, where you are, um, like, what's the average house price in Chicago? Good question to ask. 
Yeah, great question to ask. So if okay. we wanted to look at the mean house price, we would have to add up all the house prices and then divide it by the total number of houses. But what's that actually telling us? It kind of doesn't tell us anything. And it can be really skewed by several ridiculously expensive, huge places right in the middle mm. of downtown. Mm. And that's not a very uh, helpful metric necessarily. Whereas if we say half of the houses cost less than this and half of the houses cost more than this, it does actually tell us something that we can get our hands on. Even with median, which you like because it's right in the middle and it kind of weeds out the, you know, your Bill Gates's and and so on. Um, Are there times when we're looking at, you know, government statistics or, you know, large uh, surveys that have been done of data where we're looking at the median and we think, well, this is pretty good because this is right smack in the middle. It really should tell us a lot. What should we be, I don't know, on the lookout for or even skeptical of when we think about median? Well, whenever a a set of results is summed up by one number, we're always losing information. So we should always be aware of what information we've lost. So with the median, what we've lost is exactly how much everyone does have who are above and below that. So, for example, if you look at a median income, you could then give everybody who's richer than that tons more money and the median wouldn't change because the number of people earning more than, say, $20,000 would still be the same. Even Mm -hmm. if you gave all the rich people another million dollars, the median would would not detect that. So that is something that the median can't detect. Hmm. Do you feel like you see studies uh, where people take advantage of our confusion about how to understand what's really average or what's really going on with a group of people? Definitely. Unfortunately, everyone has heard that adage that there's lies, damn lies and statistics. And the thing is, statistics tell us exactly what the statistics tell us. And so you can always pick a statistic or you can manipulate your data to to produce a result that will mask the thing that you've just manipulated, Mm -hmm. like I just did by giving all the rich people a million dollars. And if we who are reading these statistics don't fully understand what the statistics are telling us, then we are opening ourselves up to being manipulated in that way. So, for example, if you know that the mean is going to be published, then you can make sure that the mean cost of something, say, ticket prices, you can make sure the mean goes down, even though most of your ticket prices has gone up. Hmm. It also makes me think about how people have talked so much about income inequality, right? And in general, income for people, Americans in the middle, has not shifted that much over the past few decades. But in the top 1%, it's gone up a lot. And in the top 0.1%, it's gone up really, really a lot. And so, you know, if you don't pay attention to that, even though it's a small number of people, you're kind of missing, I don't know, a, a real piece of the action that, that you might want to know about, whether it comes to taxes right. or whatever it is. Right. And so maybe we found a case where the median isn't very good because the median won't detect if the top 1% has become phenomenally even richer than they were before. I think that the moral of this is that, as I said earlier, one number is never going to sum up an entire situation. And when we're thinking about income inequality, there are other measures that can detect things a little better, such as the one that looks at the top 10th percentile, so how much the top 10% 
of people are earning compared with how much the lowest 10% are earning or 20% or pick two points, one at the top and one near the bottom. And then you take a ratio of the income of the top people to the income of the lower people. And that gives us a much better idea of income inequality. Because of course, a mean or a median, any kind of average just tries to pick one point somewhere in the middle. And if we're trying to compare the richer people with the less rich people, then we can't do that with just one number in the middle. Eugenia Chang is a scientist in residence at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she's also author of the forthcoming book, Thinking Better, The Art of Logic in an Illogical World. Eugenia, thanks so much. Thank you. Talk just a little, let's meet in the middle, If you get nervous before a flight, Eugenia Chang might be able to help. I spoke with her recently about her fear of flying and why, even though the stats are on our side, we still get sweaty palms before takeoff. You can find our conversation at our website, innovationhub.org. This is Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. And now a dip into history for the story of a guy who wanted to enhance the lives of average people by making stuff at low accessible prices. His name is Ingvar Kamprad, and he's a man who really loved his Volvo. At least he loved the idea of holding on to it year after year after year. He watched the odometer go up. And eventually, a few years ago, he did get rid of that Volvo, but not until he had owned it for more than two decades and squeezed pretty much every little bit of life out of it. And Ingvar is legendary for that kind of hardcore thriftiness. He likes to eat at low-priced restaurants. His house is decorated with lots of assemble-it-yourself furniture. And he even, apparently, has been known to hit up the bargain bin at grocery stores. Ingvar is not in denial about being cheap. He said... That's just the way he is. But he's also a billionaire. Forbes estimates that his net worth is just about $3.5 billion. He started building his fortune by buying matches in bulk and then selling them to individual customers so he could pocket the cost difference. And that was when he was six. Over the next few years, his business diversified. He started selling fish and Christmas ornaments and pencils. He became obsessed with cutting costs and maximizing efficiency. And he actually believes that we should divide time into 10-minute units and then try not to waste each of those units. When he was 17, Ingvar started the company that made him famous. It revolutionized the sales of something pretty basic, and it made its name in large part by being cheap. And it's a company that Ingvar Kamprad named after himself. After his initials, actually, and the initials of the town and the area he's from. And forgive my pronunciation of Swedish here, Elmtarid Agunarid. So if you're keeping track, that's I-K-E-A. IKEA's notion that you could put furniture together yourself, which would save a ton of money in both labor and shipping, marked a huge change in the way that furniture was sold. And it changed the income of those who could afford to buy it. Today, Ingvar is 91, lives in Sweden, mostly maintains his modest spending habits, and his company is now the largest furniture retailer in the world.
Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. So rewind to July for a second. It's the middle of the night. You probably remember it or you remember hearing about it. And a bunch of mostly older guys are standing around, suits and ties, waiting to vote on a bill Mr. on Purdue. the floor of the Senate. Mr. Peters. And then at about 1.30 in the morning, everything changes. High drama on Capitol Hill. In a shocking vote early this morning, Senator John McCain delivering a death blow with a surprising no vote as Senate Republicans failed in a make-or-break effort to repeal Obamacare. Not long after that, Ross Baker, who's a political scientist at Rutgers University, was on a call talking about these dramatic health care debates that we're living through with an unusual person. A man who's retired from two sorts of boxing rings, a literal boxing ring and the U.S. Senate, a man named Harry Reid. Reid is the former Democratic leader of the Senate. He's from Nevada. And he offered up to Baker in that moment a pearl of wisdom. He said, you know, I saw McCain standing up there and I knew that he was casting that vote and giving political cover to at least five Republicans who would like to have voted no. But he was basically taking the bullet for them. Earlier in the night, reporters had pressed Senator McCain on how he was going to vote. Wait for the show, he said. President Trump, of course, has been pushing Senate Republicans to repeal Obamacare pretty much ever since he became president. And the fact that, as Harry Reid said, several senators may have sought cover behind McCain rather than voting how they actually wanted to vote, that could be a sign that bipartisanship is basically no longer possible. And maybe that's the situation in 2017. In one state, though, there's a major bipartisan experiment going on. And it's not a state that swings back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. It is a deep red state. But... While it is a Republican state, it's difficult to fit it into traditional ideological boxes because people are very comfortable with high levels of government spending and a large role for government. Andrew Kitchenman is a state government reporter for the public radio station KTOO in Juneau, Alaska. It's a Republican state with a little twist of something else. We're very aware of climate change. It's happening. There are uh, Alaska Native villages that are directly affected by rising sea levels. But at the same time, it's a state that depends as much on resource extraction as any state in the country. And if you're against resource extraction in Alaska, then you're, you're saying you're against jobs. So add that all up, and what do you get? A Republican governor named Bill Walker. Well, Republican-ish. In 2010, he ran as a Republican, and he challenged the sitting incumbent uh, Republican governor, Sean Parnell, and was defeated in the primary. He still wanted to be governor, and he saw that path essentially blocked. So four years later, when he decided to run again, he decided to run as an independent. That alone, running as an independent, would not have been enough to win Bill Walker the election. But remember, Republicans run against Democrats, and Democratic gubernatorial candidate Byron Mullot knew that in Alaska, Democrats can have a tough time. Both uh, Walker and Mullot were running in the 20 to 25 percent range, 
and uh, Governor Parnell was running a little bit less than 50 percent, about 40 percent, they sort of realized that if they work together, they might be able to, to win. And so Malat agreed to become Walker's lieutenant governor nominee. And so there was no Democrat in that election. They called themselves the unity ticket, not Republicans, not Democrats, and it worked. Walker and Malat got 48% of the vote, which was enough to win. Next year, they're up for re-election, and Alaska has been experimenting with this new brand of politics for the last few years. In 2010, centrist Senator Lisa Murkowski lost the Republican primary, but she still managed to keep her seat by running as a write-in candidate. And the only way she could make it work was to teach people to spell her name. The word is Murkowski. Could you please define that? Alaska's senior senator in Washington who represents all Alaskans. Could you please use that in a sentence? To re-elect Lisa Murkowski, you must fill in the oval and write in her name. Murkowski, M-U-R-K-O-W-S-K-I. That is correct. Murkowski was one of three Republican senators, along with Senator John McCain and Susan Collins from Maine, to vote against the Obamacare repeal over the summer. She's also introduced some bipartisan bills into Congress, including one earlier this year aimed at reducing the high cost of energy and expanding renewables. So is what's cooking in Alaska something that could potentially spread? Let's go back to Rutgers professor Ross Baker, the one who was on the phone with Harry Reid when Reid analyzed McCain's dramatic middle-of-the-night vote. Baker said he's asked a bunch of senators, is bipartisanship dead? Well, to a man and a woman, they said it's not dead. It either They either said it right out straight immediately or in the course of the conversation. Baker is actually the author of a book called Is Bipartisanship Dead? A Report from the Senate. And he says when you're thinking about answering that question and whether indeed a new sort of bipartisanship could be created, there's one important thing to remember. President Trump is unusual. President Trump is really a party crasher. He has not been a recognizable Republican. I think that he feels in many ways closer to Schumer. Schumer's much more his kind of guy than is Paul Ryan, who I think he kind of looks upon as a sort of naive Boy Scout. We're talking there, of course, about Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader of the Senate, and Paul Ryan, the Republican Speaker of the House. Well, you know, it's really interesting because there's this old saying in, in American politics that, you know, you, you dance with the one who brung you to the dance. And he's not. He's ditching his date. Baker says when he worked in the Senate, many Democrats were fans of their colleague Jeff Sessions, not on the issues, but as a person. And he, of course, went on to be Trump's first endorser in the Senate. And what he's received for all of this fidelity is basically a kick in the teeth. So like I said, President Trump is unusual. He's allied himself with Democrats in the past. He's contributed to Democrats. Actually, he's contributed a lot to Chuck Schumer. And now he's a conservative Republican, mostly. But you might want to stay tuned. So maybe the Alaska experiment is actually not all that crazy. Maybe we are living through a moment, strange as it might be, of bipartisan commingling. But Baker says, don't blink. You might miss it. I think that the periods of bipartisan cooperation are the rarities. And the periods of, 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 of polarization and, and partisanship are, are much more the norm. There are times in which there are kind of lulls between storms or perhaps the bipartisan periods are sort of the eye in the storm and the walls of the, of the eye are, are on either side of it. These are 
enduring issues uh, in American political life that started from the very beginning, uh, debates over the proper scope of the federal government. I mean, mm-hmm. that was that was something that that was debated uh, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was one of the things that uh, James Madison had to reassure uh, Thomas Jefferson about that the uh, uh, that the federal government would not become, as as one anti-federalist called it, the uh, the the fetus of despotism. Uh, <laughs> That's quite a phrase. <laughs> That is quite a phrase. It's very, very 18th century. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and and I think since then, I mean, terrible debates over tariffs and uh, money uh, in the 19th century. Slavery mm-hmm. uh, obviously right. was tremendously divisive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you had these times which people tend to look back with some degree of nostalgia on periods of the uh, late 1960s, 1970s. And part of the reason why there was more harmony was because the Democrats were the dominant force in Congress. Mm-hmm. And, and they uh, had so many more members in both houses uh, than the Republicans that the Republicans were basically a, uh, an afterthought, mm-hmm. that the Republicans got whatever sort of fell off the Democratic table. Right. And in fact, one, one, of the, one of the reasons that Newt Gingrich came to power in the House of Representatives was that he basically accused... Uh, the Republican leadership of being, in a sense, quislings, of, of being collaborators mm-hmm. with the Democrats. And he and a group of other younger Republicans at the time uh, really kind of made the point that the, that the party really wasn't very distinctive anymore. And mm-hmm. one of the things that makes a party distinctive is hard-edged ideology. Um, Professor Francis Lee from the University of Maryland has made the case, and I think it's a very persuasive one, that one of the reasons why um, congressional politics are so nasty is because the numbers are so close that in any given two-year uh, uh, congressional election period, uh, that majority con- control can change. And you kind of look at the last 20 years and there it is. So the idea really is to use the legislative process not to legislate but to bring up votes that are bound to embarrass members on the other side, force them to take a position which will then be used against them in their campaigns. And that's what increasingly it's it, it's all about. So it sounds like in some sense partisanship you think is sort of part of the fabric of America. I do think so. I think what's happened, of course, is that the, the language of partisanship has become much more harsh hmm. and that there are just a lot of fighting words. And I had an interesting conversation with a Democratic House member about the whole question of climate change. Uh, he serves on a committee that, that deals with uh, issues of the environment. And uh, I said, you know, how, how do you talk to the Republicans when, when clearly they, you know, deny the existence of climate change, call it a hoax and so on? He says, I just don't use the term. Right. He said, I, he said they love to talk about uh, renewables. He said, I'll talk to them about renewables. And that works. So we may have to deal with polarization by adopting a vocabulary of euphemisms. How about um, in state governments? Do you feel like state governments, you know, like when you're the governor, it's easier to be bipartisan than when you're, you know, in the sort of maelstrom of Washington? <laughs> you're, you're talking to somebody from New Jersey where all politics at the state level is, <laughs> is transactional. <laughs> You know, it's really interesting because if you really wanted a model of bipartisan cooperation, 
you would have to look at the relationship between Governor Chris Christie, a Republican, the governor of New Jersey, and the Democrats in the state uh, Senate and, and, uh, and Assembly. Uh, mm-hmm. That the, the governor in New Jersey is constitutionally a very powerful office, uh, probably the most powerful governorship in the country. As a result, he has certain advantages over the legislature, but, but the history of, of Chris Christie's administration has been the enactment of legislation with a good deal of, of Democratic support. And that's mm-hmm. because they're, they want to do deals. Now, mm-hmm. Ideology plays very, very little role in state politics, at least in this state. In other states, it's, it's, it's much more important, but it's, it's the deals that, uh, that count, not the ideals. When people say, uh, voters say they want bipartisanship, do you think they really mean it? I think at a certain level, there's, I think, a sincere desire for people to work together, except if you are supporting a particular cause that brooks no compromise, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and you can name any number of issues, uh, whether it's background checks on firearms or abortion or, uh, you know, aid to parochial schools and so on, in which the lines are just drawn so starkly um, that it's kind of hard to see any kind of compromise at all. And it's important to understand they are not the only issues, that there is compromise and there's cooperation on a daily basis on many, many issues. So, again, it kind of gets back to this business of the language, the way you approach things, to find the proper euphemism that, that allows you to open a conversation with someone with a very, very different opinion, uh, and, or also just to kind of find the, the areas of agreement uh, that allow you and and to achieve some of your objectives and and to and to allow the institution to function in a more or less normal way. Ross Baker is a professor of political science at Rutgers, and he's the author of the book "Is Bipartisanship Dead?" A report from the Senate. Ross, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Kara. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. So one more thing about that phone conversation that Baker was having with Harry Reid. Even at that point, over the summer, Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had spent months fighting over and over to repeal health care. Reid had had tough fights, too, when he was a leader in the Senate. And so Baker asked him a question. Didn't you really feel the little scintilla of sympathy for Mitch McConnell? He said, no, not one bit. He said, he deserved everything he got. So apparently, one thing everyone can agree on is that the other side should suffer. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Songer and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also have production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. PRI, Public Radio International.